This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, an in-depth discussion about the latest economic reforms in Cuba, how close is the island to following the Chinese model. And we'll also have the second part of our interview about politics, journalism, and free speech in El Salvador. But before we get to those interviews, we turn to Vanessa Hazes-Gonzati, who has this week's roundup of news from around Latin America. The Venezuelan opposition coalition, known as MUD, motivates Venezuelans living in D.C. to vote in the upcoming elections. Carla Bustillos, electoral coordinator for MUD in Washington, says there are myths about manipulation of votes abroad. There must be a high concern in terms of the Venezuelans living abroad. If you have about a million, approximately a million Venezuelans living abroad, out of which only 57,000 are participating in elections. So the value of their vote and their right to vote or not uh, must be definitely a concern. She says that votes are accounted for and that it's important for Venezuelans to get out to vote. The opposition primaries will be held in February and the winner will challenge President Chavez in October 2012. Like in many countries in Latin America, Venezuela will have voting centers in the United States and other locations around the world. A delegation of U.S. religious leaders visiting Cuba asked for access to visit Alan Gross, an American imprisoned for bringing restricted communications equipment into the island. Tomorrow will be two years since Gross was arrested in Cuba while working as a subcontractor on a project to build democracy financed by the U.S. Earlier this year, he was convicted of crimes against the Cuban state and sentenced to 15 years in prison. General Secretary of the National Council of Churches, Michael Kinnamon, says the delegation is still waiting to know whether or not they will be allowed to visit Gross. The Cuban government has granted permission for several people to visit him this year, including former President Jimmy Carter and Gross's wife. Former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson tried to negotiate Gross's release in September during a visit to the island, but was unsuccessful. Yet another economic change, Cuban farmers can now sell products directly to businesses catering to tourists. The change took effect Thursday, and according to the Cuban government, it is meant to improve the variety and quality of food to a tourist section. Tourism is one of Cuba's most important sources of foreign exchange, but many visitors talk about poor service and low food quality. The new regulations generate a big change as they reduce the state's role and as they allow buyers and sellers to set prices. These changes are part of the 300 reforms President Raul Castro has proposed to jumpstart the weak Cuban economy. Guatemalan President Alvaro Colom ordered former President Alfonso Portillo be extradited to the United States to face money laundering charges. The U.S. government accused Portillo of appropriating about $70 million, which prosecutors say he laundered in the U.S. and in Europe. Portillo was a member of the Guatemalan Republican Front, the right-wing party led by former General Efrain Rios Montt, accused of genocide during his 1982-1983 dictatorship. <music> Colombia's main leftist armed group, the FARC, blames President Juan Manuel Santos for the deaths of four security force members. Authorities say they were murdered when soldiers happened upon the insurgents holding them. 
Farc claims that the four were killed during an army rescue mission meant to prevent the rebels from releasing the prisoners without meeting government demands. All of the hostages had been held captive for at least 12 years. Former hostages say it is FARC policy to kill captives rather than allow them to be rescued. This is Vanessa Hayes Gonzari reporting for Latin Pulse. Thanks, Vanessa. And now this week's first in-depth analysis. As we just heard, this week Cuba rolled out another round of reforms aimed at farmers and the tourist sector. Joining us to analyze these reforms and the other economic changes we've seen this year is Phil Brenner, a political scientist at American University who specializes in Cuba, along with other parts of Latin America. Phil Brenner, welcome to Latin Pulse. Thank you very much. What's your reaction to this new round of changes for Cuba? Well, it's part of a long series of changes that have gone on this year that are quite traumatic in Cuba. Cuba is a very different country today than it was a year ago, uh, although it hasn't gone far enough, I'd say. A year ago, uh, President Castro, this is Raul Castro, uh, announced that there were going to be a series of changes that included laying off one million workers uh, from state jobs in Cuba. And uh, the, he said, there's no reason to pay people for doing nothing. Uh, and many of these jobs weren't uh, producing anything. And uh, part of this is that Cuba is in a kind of economic crisis because uh, the, there has been a growing inequality uh, partly because there is a small private sector, there had been, and partly uh, because there wasn't any way of distributing goods efficiently. And they've decided to turn to the market. Uh, that's now clear from the party congress that was held in April 2011 and just a few months ago. Um, and that party congress affirmed that the economy now will be a mixed economy. Uh, so this these reforms yesterday are part of that process. What Cuba had suffered, for example, is in their tourist hotels, and they had more than two million tourists last year, mostly from Canada uh, and from Europe. Uh, uh, they were spending their hard currency earnings uh, from those tourists on buying things that tourists want, like food. Cuba doesn't produce enough food for its own people or tourists, and so they'd have to spend money on that. And it made an awful lot of sense for their own farmers to grow the food that uh, tourists would eat. And by giving the, the farmers an incentive to do this, to sell the food directly to the hotels, the farmers could make uh, more money, and the hope would be that they would then uh, provide that kind of uh, food for the hotels. But the problem is that they don't have enough farmers working the land. Uh, one of the reforms that was announced this year was giving out free land to people, and people haven't been taking it. Uh, and one of the reasons is that they haven't been, in a sense, felt compelled to. They still have their jobs in the, in the government, so they're earning a salary. The promise of firing one million people, which was supposed to have occurred by now, uh, hasn't happened. And uh, Castro announced that it will take now longer to fulfill that, uh, that threat or promise. And uh, so people haven't been quick to find other work like that. Second, they, people who get money from their families in the United States, the President Obama issued an, a ruling that said Cuban Americans can send to their families any amount of money they want. Uh, before this, uh, there had been a limit of uh, $300 a quarter, 
Now they can send as much money as they want. uh, And what Cuban Americans, some Cuban Americans are doing in effect is investing in Cuba through their families. They'll send down money so a family can buy a pizzeria or the the makings of a pizzeria or a sewing machine so you can start opening up a tailor shop. Uh, And all of these kinds of jobs are now available to Cubans. Uh, There was a list of 180 seven different kinds of occupations that would become legal that before people had been doing on the sly. So people are starting up these businesses with the money that they're getting from their relatives, and they're not giving up their state jobs. Meanwhile, they don't have an incentive to go out to the country. Uh, People who've been living in the city as professionals don't want to go and take land in the country. And so there hasn't been enough incentive for people to move out and take up this land to produce food for whole country. You and I both travel to Cuba, and so I don't think it's news that uh, food, the quality of food, is not usually what tourists are going to Cuba for. So I think it's good news that we're going to hear um, uh, maybe more, with with few exceptions. There are a few places that you can go in Cuba with, with wonderful food, but, but usually the tourist sector isn't raving about the food there. But this issue about land, free land, and now the reforms that we've seen come in that have to do with the ability for people to actually sell real estate. That doesn't sound like much to folks in Miami, but that's huge for folks in Havana. So so the state is going to give free land and people can actually sell it and make a profit, but people haven't jumped on this yet. Well, let's be clear. They can sell houses um, and uh, they can uh, they can buy and sell houses. Whether they can sell the land they're getting out in the countryside is a different issue. In, in many ways, we, did, we in the United States did the same thing in, during the Civil War. We created the Homestead Act, and we gave people 160 acres and a mule uh, if they moved out and settled the country. Uh, and this is Cuba's same idea, uh, they, uh, giving people actually even more land uh, to work on. And uh, the... the uh, uh, incentive, though, hasn't been there uh, because they, it requires, for example, uh, housing that hasn't been provided. It requires seed. It requires farm implements. But the other thing is they'd have to work the land for five years before they'd be eligible to sell it. Uh, they'd have to improve the land. That was true under the Homestead Act. Well, so are we going to see now a revolution in economics because of real estate in Cuba? We're going to see growing inequality. Uh, because some people will be able to sell their houses and some people live in apartments. Maybe they'll be able to sell them, but where are they going to live? There is a housing shortage in Cuba. Uh, And so it's not going to... What this provides, essentially, is a replacement for Social Security, because the pensions that the Cuban government has been providing are really quite small, 200 pesos a month. So in U.S. dollars, that's essentially the equivalent of... About nine dollars, um, and uh, while rent is free and uh, other things don't cost much money, healthcare is free. You don't go very far on two hundred on two hundred pesos or nine dollars a month, uh, even in Cuba. And so, they needed some way to provide a social safety net, and this was a way of doing that by allowing people essentially to sell their houses and have some savings, which they didn't have before. Uh, I think that's what's going to change. But there will be inequalities that result because there will be differential uh, 
values to these houses uh, that there weren't before. And so there'll be starting to be some rich people. Cuba's biggest problem, though, is it suffers two problems. One, as they gain a market, there's going to be inequality. That's going to change the nature of this Cuban revolution, which had, uh, had placed a high value on equality, um, egalitarianism. The, uh, so that's going to change. And at the same time, uh, they have a problem of, imp- of finding things to sell to the world because they need to be able to be able to buy things in the world. Oil, for example, when Venezuela stops selling them oil at a very low price, they need to be able to uh, find ways to buy oil. And, uh, and so the, their real problem is they have not yet figured out what to sell. They're selling some nickel which is they're the third largest nickel producer in the world. So that's something. They stopped selling sugar, essentially. It's no longer king. Sugar is no longer king. They uh, have an interesting pharmaceutical industry. It's not going to be enough to save them. Uh, tobacco and rum is not uh, what Cuba is going to make its living on. There's been some speculation that we're going to see people from Spain, elsewhere in the world, using relatives and others as fronts in Cuba to invest heavily now in, in real estate. Do you see that happening? That I see that happening already. Um, and uh, not just real estate, which is one of the things in cars, but in, as I was suggesting, in pizzerias, if you take a charter, there are now four or five charters a day from Miami, from many cities in the United States, New York, Los Angeles, Tampa. Uh, the planes are filled with cargo. In fact, they're so filled that uh, these charter companies are sending two planes for every plane load of people because the second plane is carrying goods. Uh, and what they're bringing down is implements for these kinds of shops that uh, their relatives uh, want to open up. Those are essentially investments. So we're, we're actually seeing U.S. investment go to Cuba now because of this market opening. We're seeing U.S. investment, this, though the United States continues to have no diplomatic relations. We have an embargo against Cuba, but we're seeing increasing investment by individuals, by individuals, not companies. So individual speculators getting into the Cuban market early, they, they may benefit quite a bit. And what's interesting is they're Cuban-Americans. Uh, that's the key. And the key here is that these are people who left and didn't go through the suffering that some did in Cuba. And there's enormous resentment about this. Because the, the people who left, they feel, shouldn't gain any of the benefits now after the many years of suffering that people who stayed uh, incurred. Now, we have this Helms-Burton Act, which is supposed to stop investment into, into Cuba. But this is actually a loophole because these folks have family there or, or are Cuban-Americans. They're, they're able to invest as individuals. Yes. Uh, this is w- within Helms-Burton allowed for the investments or the sending of remittances by Cuban-Americans. And what President Obama changed was the amount and how often you could do it. So you have mentioned at the very beginning of this interview that you would like to see more reforms, more things need to come. What are your suggestions? Oh, I'm not sure that I I said that, but I I do think that what Cuba needs is uh, a way of reforming while it maintains a social safety net. Um, and this is a... So you know, a different pattern of reforms is what you're saying? Well, I think that the problem is no country offers us a model. We don't have any country in the world except maybe Norway, uh, which has been able to develop itself from being a poor country to a 
middle-income country without enormous inequality. Brazil, a great example, still has one of the worst levels of inequality in the world. So do you have some concrete suggestions? If, if Raul were here and, you, and he would listen to you, what would you tell him? I'd tell him that uh, there are things that they could open up without endangering the inequality. Uh, there are technical things they can do, working, for example, with some of the international development banks that are, have changed their model and now are willing to offer some technical advice, even marketing advice that Cuba could use. They could come to American University's School of Business and learn some simple things about marketing. So they should learn from American University rather than from the Chinese and the Chinese model. Well, the Chinese model is an authoritarian model. I think that uh, Cuba is um, a different country than China. Uh, Cubans do not tolerate the kind of imposition that the Chinese government had. We hear of Cuba as a totalitarian society. It's not. It's very open. There's a lot of, as your last program had, a lot of music that challenges the regime. There's a lot of open dissent there. Uh, China doesn't quite tolerate that. Well, Phil Brenner, with that... A good end to our interview about the latest Cuban reforms. Phil Brenner, political scientist at American University and the author of A Contemporary Cuban Reader, joining us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Thanks, Rick. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination, and domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse, and now our pre-recorded interview with Imena Aguilar, a reporter for the popular Salvadoran website El Faro, where she specializes in covering Salvadoran politics. We'd like to talk to you about the conditions for free speech in El Salvador. Many of the neighboring countries around El Salvador have problems with with free speech issues. And so as a reporter working in that environment in Central America, how do you characterize the conditions for free speech in El Salvador? Well, I think we have um, a very... We don't have any problems with free speech. We haven't had any until now. And journalists have been able to say pretty much what they wanted ever since the war ended and the peace accords were signed. And for those who don't follow Salvadoran history, we're talking about the early 1990s for that period of time. So the past uh, decade, dozen years or so, conditions have been different. Yes, in many of the countries, though, surrounding El Salvador, Guatemala in particular, Honduras, those countries have Nicaragua too, but maybe less so in Nicaragua, the problems with drug gangs and cartels. And so I'm, I'm wondering what's the impact of those things on El Salvador, because many of those countries actually complain that the gangs originate in El Salvador that have gone to the rest of, of Central America. So... Well, actually, the gangs is, well, the how they initiated is a mixed issue. Many of the gangs started when a lot of um, illegal immigrants were deported from the United States to El Salvador, and they already were part of 
were members of these gangs, the MS-13 and the Barrio 18. So, and MS-13, for those who don't know, also still operates in the United States, yes. and especially in the Washington, D.C. area. Yes. And after they got to El Salvador, they, there were a lot of social issues in El Salvador, and a lot of young, young men who were homeless. And, well, it's really hard to explain because it is very, a very complex subject, but... Well, we've done a, a series of publications about how the Barrio 18 started and how it, it has developed throughout the years. And I think that we are the most affected by, by the gang problems and not quite so as the drug cartels problems like Guatemala. And so when you say we, we're talking about El Salvador, Asal not necessarily just journalists. Yeah. No, journalists... Well, we, as I said before, we have been publishing about the gangs, and we've also done a, a series of publications about drug cartels working in El Salvador, and until now, there hasn't been any security issues surrounding that those publications. Because El Faro is maybe not so well known in the United States, um, do you know the URL offhand that you can just tell us? www.elfaro.net and El Faro would be E-L-F-A-R-O. Yes. Is that correct? Uh, so uh, what other things can we find on the El Faro website uh, in the area of investigation um, in working on the issues of corruption because corruption still is a big problem in El Salvador? One of the series that has been, uh, we've been publishing this year is how the institute who was supposed to, to hand out the... Um, the land who was taken away from the, the big landowners in the 80s and 90s, um, they were supposed to give it out to small and poor, um, poor uh, peasants. peasants, and they ended up in the hands of congressmen. Three congressmen who are working right now were given lands and they were listed as, as peasants and well we've uh, this is an institution who which shows a lot of how the corruption works in in El Salvador so the congressmen who wish they were campesinos yeah is this typical for for members of congress as someone who covers congress uh, is this unusual well not actually because um i think it was last year or 2 years ago that we it was it was right after funes uh, president funes came into office, that we found out that um, one of the the congressmen from Arena was Arena being the right wing party. The right wing party um, was listed in. Well, he basically had two jobs in. He was getting paid from two institutions of the government, the Congress, and one of one one office from the executive of power. Did the president even know that he was on this payroll? Which president? Well, President Funes, or he was president on President Saka's Yes, um, that was payroll. before, yeah. I see, I see. So so w that changed, obviously, when there was a change yes. in office. President Saka being the um, former president before Mauricio Funes and, and a member of the Arena Party. So um, uh, could you tell us maybe ab about some of the um, more controversial 
pieces that you have been able to run about corruption um, because of this opening for free expression in El Salvador, unlike some of the neighboring countries in Central America? Well, we published two years ago the story of um, how um, high-ranking member of ARENA, the right-wing party, um, was recorded telling these um, former congressman who is charged with um, uh, with drug trafficking um, and is now currently in the United States in a United States prison in Arizona. He he offered this former congressman to to make the, his charges go away in exchange of half a million dollars. And, and go ahead, please. We published that, and then the the party expelled this person. And a couple of months later, he was found dead near his house. But fortun fortunately, we, ha as journalists, didn't have any problems surrounding that, that story. We, well, a couple of days ago, the, um, I don't know which, which international organization was that published, um, I've forgotten the name, but they published a ranking of where which countries are the most dangerous, the mo the most violent, and from two thousand four to two thousand nine, we were the highest, the the country with the highest murder rate in the world, more than Iraq, and more than countries that are in war right now. And is this the impact then of drug gangs, of cartels, of the street gangs like MS thirteen in El Salvador, or is it something else? It's mostly the impact of the gangs, and now the the merging of the gangs with the drug drug cartels. And is there still some impact from these um, immigration policies in the U.S. leftovers from the war or other um, factors that are that are part of this violence, or is it strictly drug war violence? Well, it's. I think it's a combination of many factors. One of them, the the poverty in El Salvador. There are many people who can get a job. They, and that is one of the biggest issues. And because of the the high rates of poverty, many people decide to to immigrate to the United States. And most of them don't take their small children with them. And in I think it was mostly in the 90s that a lot of people went immigrate to the to the United States and left uh, their teenage boys and girls alone and these were the ones who then became part of the gangs so it's um because of poverty people have to leave and then they leave their children in a violent violent environment and they don't have any choice but to become part of part of it have we seen the new government, the leftist government in the past three years, try to deal with some of these issues of poverty and social inequity? These were issues that almost nightly you could hear President Funes talk about when he was a television reporter. So what have they done in the past three years? Well, we haven't seen any big changes in those subjects, neither in violence. For example, he's he has, uh, President Funes has 
taken or has applied the similar laws um, which previous previous governments did the very hardline um, what laws. we call the mano dura mano dura yes and he's brought brought the the army to the prisons in order to help dealing with the violence and and security problems but it's been proven and the international commission of human rights has said it that bringing in the army to civil security to the citizen security problems does not solve anything well with that thank you very much Elena Aguilar from El Faro website uh, doing news and investigation in El Salvador thank you for joining us on Latin Pulse thank you so much Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes to see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America you can check out Link TV's website www.linktv all one word .org and then forward slash Latin Pulse also all one word that's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse.gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, .gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For associate producer Vanessa Jesus Gonzati and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2011, Las Rocas Productions. <laughs>